Welcome to the Convivium COVID-19 Podcasts. Visit us at www.convivium-brecken.com. Series 1. Paradoxes in an Ancient Landscape. What a Welsh Mountain Taught Me About God and the World. By Mark Clavier. Episode 5. History. Earlier on the same day that I sat by Xing Kai pondering God's timelessness, I'd started my walk in the little village of Llanvehangol-e-Penant at the top of the Dissany Valley. The village contains a small medieval church dedicated to St. Michael, a few farms scattered amongst hedged fields and along hillsides, and a row of cottages probably erected before machinery for the farmhands that worked the land. There was little to give the settlement shape except for the topography and the Avon Kader that runs through the centre of the parish. Even the church sat in splendid isolation, largely invisible to the rest of the village behind tall hedgerows of Hawthorne. As I pulled into the car park where I planned to leave my car, somberly dressed locals made their way quietly to the church for a funeral as no doubt people have done for more than 700 years. After the funeral, I nipped into the church to have a look around. The church is plain and unadorned with two rows of old wooden pews and a narrow sanctuary demarcated by a communion rail with a low pulpit. At the rear of the church stands a stone font that apparently dates to the 12th or 13th century. These humble Welsh churches rarely feature in colourful books of grand medieval parish churches, like the wool churches that dot the Cotswolds and East Anglia. But they have their own modest charm, and seem somehow more of the people, and less of the local grandees. One shouldn't be fooled by St. Michael's modesty. As a tiny museum in its vestry eagerly informed visitors, the church is associated with Mary Jones, a teenage girl who in 1800 walked 26 miles across the mountains to Bala to obtain a copy of the Welsh Bible. Her devotion, not to mention endurance, inspired the great Thomas Charles to found the Bible Society that has been distributing Bibles and encouraging its study worldwide ever since. Thus, through the piety of a poor Welsh teenage girl, the little village nestled among the remote hills of Snowdonia has touched the lives of countless people around the world. I saw on my OS map that just up the road and not far from the path that would take me where I needed to go stood Castarchabera. It's a ruinous heap astride a rocky knoll overlooking the fields and hedge that divide up the valley. It was built around 1221 by Llewellyn Vaur, the mighty Welsh Prince of Wales who caused trouble for King John and King Henry III. It was, however, no match for the army of Edward I, which captured it in the campaign that ended Welsh independence. Today, its crumbling walls have almost melted back into the natural rock and ancient wood, so that now all three seem perfectly suited to each other. Strange to think, that the place was a working castle for less than 70 years and only ever saw one siege at which it was taken. 
for the past almost 800 years it has slowly crumbled away under the dual assault of harsh Welsh winters and local farmers filching dressed stone for their homes and boundary walls. I later discovered, however, that one part of the castle does remain in use, the baptismal font. Apparently, the old font I'd seen in the parish church had originally stood in the castle chapel. How wonderful that one part of the castle to endure intact is a small stone font in which generations of infants have been sacramentally washed and given entrance into the body of Christ. In the end, a place built for warfare and to mete out pain and death to invaders only really managed to be useful by bequeathing a font in which 800 years of local children have received new life in Christ. History often offers such ironies in hindsight. A glance at my map suggested I could easily spend an entire day visiting nearby standing stones, cairns, and pre-Roman forts. If Castelchabera was already ancient by the time Mary Jones made her trek to Bala, then some of these other sites made the castle seem positively newfangled. A cairn dating back to the Bronze Age, a fort atop the splendid Krai Gerderderend, dating back to before Roman times, and a forlorn standing stone stuck in a hedge that was erected who knows when. If time has no meaning at the shore of Llyn Kai, here in the valley, it permeates everything. This is thick time, where the generations overlap and one age seems to speak to another. In one sweep of my vision, I could take in 2,000 years of human history bottled up in a small valley in West Wales. Places like the Dissany Valley suggest that communities and their landscape are stratigraphic. The layers of history are visible for anyone to see. People were around a few thousand years ago to erect their cairns on the mountains. Descendants built a fort on Krygerderen when there were rumors of the approaching Roman eagle, and their descendants watched as Castelchabera was built and destroyed. Perhaps their blood ran in the veins of Mary Jones, and continues to do so in some of the local residents today. The span of time that separates these people of a different age is contracted by the very fact that one can still visit each site. Their memory, or the faintest echo of it, are made present in the landscape they share. Whatever the period, the inhabitants of Llanvahangol Penant have lived alongside these ancient sites. A historian could write a learned piece that charts the long history of the valley, but that wouldn't capture its thick time. I suppose one would need to grow up and live in the valley to have a chance of knowing that time. It's the kind of historical wisdom that's written into people's imaginations over generations and in the company of everything else that makes a place one's home. The people, the local features, the way the landscape responds to the seasons, and the great and small events that happen or are reported over time. It's a sense of history one can only develop by relating continually to a place. It requires stability, a willingness to set down roots and stay in a spot long enough to grow familiar and to allow that place to impact us. An example of this can be found on a massive rock that lies half buried in the spongy peat near one of the paths up Kader Idris. On it are inscribed names that date back 
1632, the year that Maryland was founded as a colony. There the names of generations of shepherds who have worked on the slopes tending their flocks in a nearly unchanging practice that links those of the present to their most distant forebears. Here's memory actually inscribed in stone. What it must be like for a local shepherd to sit by that rock on a wet, foggy day, his sheep bleating around him and his rubber wellies planted on the black earth he has known his entire life. It's no wonder that in interviews with S4C, a Welsh channel, they said they wouldn't leave the valley for all the money in the world. In his book, Life is a Miracle, Wendell Berry describes what living in places like the Decini Valley provide. He writes, No human being has ever known, let alone imagined, the entire planet. And even in an age of world travel, none of us lives on the entire planet. In fact, owing to so much mobility, a lot of people don't live anywhere. But if we are to know any part of the planet intimately, particularly, precisely, and with affection, then we must live somewhere in particular for a long time. We must be able to call up to the mind's eye by name a lot of local places, people, creatures, and things. Thick time is always known locally and through intimate familiarity. But our engagements with thick history often yield to a sentimentalism that's not really faithful to what actually happened. Think Poldark. But that's only human, isn't it? We do the same with our parents, children, and lovers. Reality and our interpretation of it are never the same. We experience, interpret, retell, revise, forget, and improvise as we move through life. The old American satirist Ambrose Bierce, in his wickedly funny The Devil's Dictionary, defined a saint as, quote, a dead sinner revised and edited, end quote. Revised and edited are how all our deepest connections emerge from our hearts and minds. And that process of revising reveals to others how our relationships with particular people and places have shaped us. We manifest much about ourselves in the stories we share, often with tedious regularity, with others. But a sentimental attachment to places of thick time can be dangerous, too, since it can shackle us to long social memories of old hurts and injustices. But the solution to this isn't a global culture detached from the land. This is another lesson the earth teaches us. Our global society may seem perfectly healthy, offsetting any loss of sense of place with all the goods and services it provides. But how much of that global culture cost? How sustainable is a two-dimensional world that forgets what it owes to the past and neglects its responsibilities to the future? To live beyond the moment, we need to settle in places where we can see time manifested around us. We need the artifacts of the past to remind us of our debt to our forebears and to be mindful of our responsibility to our children. Places of thick time help us to be conscious of living within a tradition from which we have drawn life. We owe our existence not only to our parents, 
but also to the language, customs, ideas, prejudices, joys, stories, and relationships they shared as part of a wider community. One of the crimes of our cosmopolitan culture is to pretend that we owe the past nothing, as though each generation sprang fully formed from the ground, like Athena from Zeus's head. Thick time roots us to a place and allows us to share an identity with others, both past and present, and perhaps teaches us a degree of humility. To a world that tries to divorce people from the land by placing them in rationalized suburbs with standardized shops, thick time declares, the land matters. To a world that says, forget history, forget your neighbors, be whoever you want to be, thick time declares, people matter. To a world that says, you're free to do anything you want, thick time asks, why be alone when you can belong? Thick time binds us to others within a historical landscape and disposes us to live beyond ourselves. Only people who have lost their loyalty to their ancestors and to the land can live in a way that leaves little for their descendants. But of course, thick time actually does nothing. It simply is. I suspect few natives of the Dissany Valley stop to think about the peculiarity of their place or about how the historical landscape has shaped their sense of self. It's the nature of a home, though, to take our valuables for granted. Just as we don't stop often enough to appreciate the family rituals, the comfortable furniture, the sounds and smells of the house, and the memories each room contains. So, too, do we rarely appreciate the interaction between land and time, the location we call home. They simply are. Their effect on us is often at the subliminal level, and all the more powerful for that. For the subconscious is where our affections meet our imagination and compel our hearts to yield to such places. This has been a production of Convivium, an initiative of Brecon Cathedral to encourage people to live well with God, creation, their local heritage, and each other. For more information about Convivium, visit us at www.convivium-brecon.com.